Hey everyone, it's Anita and Lucas. Welcome to Chain Reaction, where we unpack and explain the latest in crypto news, drama, and trends, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. So today, during the second half of our episode, we'll be chatting with Sharam Krishnan, a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz Crypto. But before we get into that, we've got some news that happened this week from some of the big crypto companies. Things aren't looking too great out there, are they? They are not. So Coinbase, obviously a huge name in the crypto space, made some really big news this week by saying that, first of all, they were going to extend their hiring freeze, which they had announced, I think it was last month. But what really made waves was that they also announced this past week that they were going to be rescinding offers from candidates who they had already given job offers to and who had already accepted. And so Coinbase basically put out this note and they were like, we're going to rescind these offers via email. And there's still actually a lot of uncertainty from those people who had already accepted their offers. And they're sort of waiting for the shoe to drop. Like, you know, am I going to get an email? Am I going to get a call? Like, is my job safe? Is it not safe? And Our colleague Amanda has been really chasing down this story, and she has sort of talked about hearing a bunch of different things from different people and just general overall confusion of a lot of Coinbase employees or prospective employees who don't really know what their status is with the company. And for our listeners, you probably have noticed that we talk about Coinbase an awful lot. And there's a pretty clear reason that we are right now, because it's the only big publicly traded crypto company out there on U.S. stock markets. So as it's really pegged to how all these like minimal market reactions versus venture backed startups that kind of, you know, they raise when they want, they get different valuations at different times. So it's a little bit of a different scenario. But yeah, Coinbase, they have They've been struggling for a little bit now. They're riding high, but they they hired a lot of people. So I feel like we've said that every episode in the past right, like three, exactly. four weeks. Like Coinbase we is struggling and Yeah. And I mean, they're not alone though. So like there's some struggles happening across the board, correct? Yeah. So Gemini also they cut 10% of their workforce last week. And Gemini is a crypto exchange founded by the Winklevoss twins. If you've seen the social network, that's uh you know, <laughs> that's they, them. they got yeah, that's them, the twins. Um But anyway, so they also posted about the news this week, and they basically said the reason that they had laid off 10% of their workforce is because of turbulent market conditions that they said were likely to persist. And what I found really interesting about the Gemini announcement is that they gave a lot of detail on market conditions. And the Winklevoss brothers were like, okay, look, crypto is really volatile. And they basically said that crypto's journey can best be described as punctuated equilibrium. Periods of equilibrium or stasis punctuated by dramatic moments of hyper growth followed by sharp contractions. Basically, all they're saying is like, okay, crypto is volatile. So my question is like, if you knew this and you've lived through like so many crypto cycles, then how did you sort of not see this one coming? I mean, how do you overhire 10% of your workforce? Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a it's a complicated thing because like these companies, they have all these competitive exchanges that they're trying to keep pace with. So they have to like try to hire the best engineers and like try to make sure that they're like really capturing as much as they can. But then you end up in these situations where like you just have to turn on a dime immediately. And that leads to some pretty rough situations like this. Yeah. And what's interesting is, you know, just a couple of months ago, before all this talk of a crypto downturn started, I mean, being a crypto engineer or an engineer with any familiarity in blockchain was so in demand. I mean, it was such a competitive hiring market where all of these different startups were really fighting for their engineers. They were paying really premium salaries. And now to all of a sudden see that be reversed and see layoffs and job offers being rescinded is is just a huge change. Yeah. And and the thing is, this is obviously negatively affecting a lot of tech companies. The public market sell-off 
of Coinbase has been pretty severe, but that's happening to companies like Roblox. It's happening to companies, you know, Meta has like had a pretty rough go. They've apparently rescinded some job offers just because of market uncertainty in there on like a hiring freeze as well. So it's like, this is broader tech a little bit, but like, yeah, the Coinbase's and the Gemini's of the world are definitely kind of at the forefront of this for crypto. I have to mention, because I, I tweeted this earlier this week, Gemini, 10% layoffs. They also are being sued by the government for something they did a few years ago, which was announced this week. But I was looking through Twitter this week and I noticed the, you know, Winklevoss twins were following a bunch of like drummers and guitarists. So I kind of looked into it and apparently the Winklevoss twins are currently on tour and they've launched what? a cover band that is performing hits from Blink-182, The Killers and Rage Against the Machine. I have so many questions and I still have like a mental image of Army Hammer and the social network whenever I think of them. So that is just a very weird mental picture. Yeah, well, the Winklevoss twins doing a little bit better than Army Hammer right now, but that's a topic for another time. But yes. <laughs> they, the, yeah, the, the Winklevoss twins in, in leather pants is uh, something I didn't expect to see on my Twitter timeline. But yeah, that's it. <laughs> so that's what they're up to after <laughs> laying off. They're, yeah. they're having fun while their company has less fun. Definitely one way to put it. And <sighs> they're definitely not you know alone and struggling. I mean, if you look at some of the other major crypto companies, we've seen things past just layoffs. So BlockFi, mm-hmm. They're apparently set to close a down round at a lower valuation than what they had previously raised. And this was just reported this week that they are set to close in this round that would value the company at a billion dollars. Their last formal round valued them at three billion. And allegedly, there were reports sort of floating around in July that they were in the middle of raising a round that would have taken their valuation to $5 billion. Obviously, mm-hmm. that fell through. And clearly, VCs are, are saying their business is worth a billion dollars. That's a huge, huge haircut in valuation for the company. Yeah, the block reported this. And like, you know, it signals all these VCs are looking at Coinbase and seeing it like in the midst of bloodbath. And they're looking at like, hey, what are the exit opportunities for some of these unicorn blockchain startups? Hey, they're not looking real great right now. So I'm sure some pretty sizable haircuts and valuations are pretty inevitable at this point. Right. And it's been tough for startups. But on the flip side, I do want to highlight that, you know, not every single crypto company is actually struggling or firing people. And it seems to me that the traditional finance players are the ones sort of ending up on top because they are so well resourced. Fidelity's digital asset arm actually said earlier last week that it was going to double headcount this year to meet growing demand for crypto trading. So clearly very different narratives on what's going on in the market from a big firm like Fidelity versus, you know, startups and they're large startups, but they're ultimately still Coinbase only just recently went public. Right. And it's going to be interesting to see like folks like Coinbase versus things like Robinhood, where like, yeah, if crypto buying volume drops off significantly, Coinbase doesn't have anything versus, you know, Robinhood will still be in a situation where they have all these public market trading, which probably won't be as severely impacted. And as we've noted in the past, FTX is kind of looking to get into public market trading. So there's some options out there. But yeah, <laughs> that's that. That's our bit on the doom and gloom of various exchanges and companies. I think maybe pivoting next, we can talk a little bit about some crypto legislation that's going through. So this week... Not, uh, not that much more of a positive topic for the <laughs> crypto community necessarily, but this bill has some, some promising features. Yeah. I mean, so this bill came through, it was introduced by Senator Cynthia Loomis and Kirsten Gillibrand, who introduced this piece of legislation that's basically 
providing a framework for how the crypto industry should be regulated. And it's providing a framework that seems to be fairly friendly to the industry. You know, talks about stuff like how should DAOs be regulated? How should stablecoins be issued? How should tokens be treated by the SEC and the CFTC? So there's there's a lot going on here. But I think like both these senators, one's a Democrat, one's a Republican. I think people seem to be hyping this up as something that, you know, could turn into something down the road. Maybe it gets split up. Maybe it gets kind of spit out in a different direction. But basically, the crypto industry seems fairly happy with the bones here. And I think that no, as, as happy as they can be with regulation. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, yeah, it, it looks interesting. Yeah. What one of the features that stood out to me when I was reading about it was this treatment of minors because I know there was some controversy before about minors potentially being treated legally as brokers, which would have subjected them to a whole host of other rules and regulations. And in this bill, at least as it stands right now, it says that minors are not going to be treated as brokers. So that's just one example of, you know, a win that the crypto industry has if this legislation goes through with, with most of it still intact. And I think there is consensus that it probably will go through intact, even if it's going to take a long time or be split, like you said, into different pieces because of the bipartisan support. Yes. So a big thing is they're like trying to get a lot of the major cryptocurrencies and like the bulk of them classified as commodities instead of as securities, which different words, but they also mean different government orgs that are in charge of, you know, running them. So like a lot of the stuff in the bill kind of makes it seem like the CFTC, which is the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, would be in charge of regulating crypto versus the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, which has kind of seemed a little bit more cavalier in some capacity. And basically everyone in crypto hates Right. And taking a step back as to like why this really matters, I think there's been a lot of confusion from everyone in the crypto industry, all companies that are trying to operate in the US about like who even regulates us, like who's even responsible for this and what are the rules. And so this legislation is a huge step forward in that way and that it's the most comprehensive bill that's been drafted on crypto. It seems to give a lot of clarity and it resolves this sort of longstanding beef between the CFTC and the SEC over which one actually has jurisdiction over crypto. I mean, I even I've been following this for a while. And I remember some Twitter beef going down between the former CFTC commissioner and like the SEC Twitter account talking about who's actually in charge and who makes the rules. So I'm it's only fitting that it should happen on crypto Twitter. I'm glad that they got a little clarity on that. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how this shakes Absolutely. out. Like, ultimately, That's where it all goes down. Yeah, the, the crypto industry says that they want all this like regulatory clarity, which I'm sure they just don't want to do something that probably seems kind of like maybe illegal and they don't want to get in trouble for it down the road. I also think that there's like some element of this where there just aren't really that many consumer protections in place for crypto right now. And there just needs to be something. I think that like putting so much of this as commodities is going to be controversial amongst kind of more hawkish people who want to see a lot of these things that look and act like securities treated legally as securities. But the government has proven to be not that great at regulating tech across the board in general. So maybe acting kind of initially with a little bit of a lighter touch and kind of dialing yeah. in later is going to be the right path forward here. And I guess to bring that all back home, it goes to show how long the government in the U.S. really sat waiting to do something and hasn't taken any action. Because even Senator Cynthia Loomis, who is the Republican co-sponsor of the bill, she's known to be pretty friendly to crypto. I mean, she's even gone and said that she owns crypto. Like, generally, she's seen as a friend of the industry. So for, mm. for that kind of senator to be introducing regulatory legislation just shows how much there's a need for this and how long we've waited and pushed it off. 
Yeah. And I mean, generally, no one in the government wants to be the one responsible for stopping the party <laughs> like of cash moving. So like generally, it's going to be in a bear cycle that some of this regulation gets put forward. That's just kind of how it happens. And I think that right now people don't really see an imminent bounce back for crypto. So they're like, OK, this is the time to put our heads down, get some regulation out there, get some consumer protections in place. Yeah, while, then, while people are know, already kind of upset about crypto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, like we're not going to be responsible for stopping any forward economic momentum here. We're just this is the right time to do it is pretty much what they're saying, I'm assuming. Yeah, so we'll have to wait and watch how that's received and what actually happens to this bill. But overall, it seems like a, a small win in the middle of a tough time for the crypto industry. Mm -hmm, definitely. This week, we're talking to Sriram Christian. Christian is a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz Crypto. Previously, Christian served in executive roles at Facebook, Snap, and Twitter. Well, Shriram, it's great to have you on the podcast and really a lot of exciting stuff that we have to talk about today. So I guess let's dive right into it. And the first thing I want to ask you is that your background and you know your sort of experience is not actually mostly in crypto. You came aboard to Andreessen with a lot of consumer investing experience. And I'm just curious, you know, why do you make that transition? And is crypto sort of like the, the cool kids club within Andreessen these days? Uh, first of all, uh, thank you so much for having me on the show. I think the cliched line is longtime listener, first time. <laughs> so I guess, you know, Zoom caller well, we appreciate in. it. Thank you. And I love what you folks do. You know, I was really excited to uh, be here. I, it's a good question. Uh, so I joined A16Z a year and a half ago. And like you said, the idea was that I invest in all things consumer. Uh, but something interesting happened. My very first week at the firm and my very first actually investment at the firm was actually a crypto company, uh, Bitsky, which is essentially a platform, which, which is a custodial wallet and it's an NFT minting platform, uh, amazing founder. So even though I actually joined the consumer team, my very first investment sort of, you know, almost accidentally, serendipitously happened to be in uh, crypto. And this is really interesting because like, you know, I was very interested in crypto. Like I'm a nerd and, you know, I used to run my own miner and I used to build virtual machines in college, which I don't think I ever really talked about. So when I looked at the ETH white paper, I was like, great, this is another virtual machine. It's Turing complete. I was kind of like nerding out, but I was never really full time into it because I feel like my background was all about consumer products, right? It was all about consumer psychology and, you know, how to get people to use things with which are pixels. That was what I spent most of my time on professionally. And so I was like, wait, this, this is so much of it so deeply which is great and amazing, but this is not what I, you know, I wasn't sure how to bring my own skill set to it. So it's kind of really interesting, kind of like a fellow nerd, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to jump in. But I think what up happening with NFTs, the DAOs, and if you look at everything from like ENS and the, or everything where you now sign in with the wallet, is now crypto started moving up from the infra layer to the app layer, right? And I think it did a few things, right? The first one is it really unlocked a lot of new kind of talent to now move into the world of crypto. So you had a lot of designers, a lot of like, you know, product builders who are not like, you know, who, who want to build consumer interfaces and, you know, play around with pixels and Figma. It brought on a lot of interesting community managers, right? Think about like uh, all the people who are kind of part of Constitution DAO or who spearhead a lot of DAO. So you just brought a very different set of people. And I looked around and I was like, hey, a lot of the people I used to work with and I really respect as kind of like peers who are deep into consumer product are now either building full-time in crypto or, you know, are spending the nights and weekends in crypto. So between right. all of this, and you know, at the beginning of this year, Chris talked to me and I was like, this is time to go full on him. So that's kind of like the, the it's kind yeah. of an organic thing, which has a bunch of factors, but all contributed. 
Yeah, and I, I actually want to talk a little bit more about A16Z in general and, and the team there. And it seems like there's a lot of enthusiasm there around crypto. I mean, you guys just announced this huge $4.5 billion crypto fund. So you mentioned you're a listener of Chain Reaction. I'm also a listener of Good Times. And I know that you've mentioned a lot a lot on the show when you have Mark Andreessen on. And you know, there's just a lot of enthusiasm for the space. So I'm just curious, like, why do you think it is that A16Z has really focused and latched on to this vision of Web3 more so than a lot of other VC firms did and also pretty early? Uh, it's a good question. First of all, I would say I can take absolutely no credit for it at all. You know, I'm somewhat new here and all of this happened many, many years ago. I think there's a few things. I think a lot of it honestly comes down to Chris, uh, Chris Dixon. You know, Chris was responsible for the very first investment into Coinbase many, many years ago. I don't remember the exact year. I'm going to say, say somewhere around 2014, 2015. At the time, there was no crypto fund. And, you know, it was really like this. I think there was one fund, you know, and there's the investment in Coinbase. And I think, you know, Chris, and then he's talked about this quite a while, you know, kind of really sort of spearheaded the thinking into crypto. And I can't emphasize this enough, right? This was not a well-understood consensus-driven mechanism around this time, right? Like, mm-hmm. imagine you're spending years and years, especially during, like, the crypto winters, uh, say, of 2017, 2018, when the prices are down. And Chris and people like Ali and then Ariana and some of these others are, like, out there working on crypto. And, you know, you're going to, like, every single, say, party or networking event and be like, hey, is crypto still a thing? But so I think there's, like, you know, a lot of it kind of, like, you know, so much credit goes to them for being so early to the space and kind of really sticking it out. And I think a lot of kind of the credibility for the firm, the crypto world, comes to the fact that, you know, they've just been around forever, right? Chris has been around since 2013. He's known everybody. He's seen, like, all the cycles in crypto. And I think that's, like, a big part of it. And I think for the firm also, right, like, I think the firm, one of the things I tell uh, people when they ask about the firm or Mark or Chris is, like, what you see on the outside is really what you get. And the firm is really about the future. And I think it kind of steals Mark's line. Uh, you know, the, with Web3, you now have a chance to go actually build a better internet, the next internet. And, you know, and at our firm, we're always about like what is possible and being going towards the future and crypto makes a lot of sense. I uh, I want to switch gears a little bit there. I know you brought up some interesting points there. People may know you, you're a pretty prolific tweeter. And, is that a good uh, thing? Is, is that I, seems like a... I think in crypto, it's a good thing. I guess it depends who you ask, maybe. I don't know, but it's a good thing with me. I feel like a butt coming on. (laughs) Well, there's actually not a butt. So it's, you know, as you know, Twitter is like, you know, it's a Web2 company, but it's a fairly essential part of the crypto web stack. Also, as you know, Elon Musk supposedly is buying Twitter now. A16Z is involved in supporting that bid. I kind of assume you're not intimately involved with that deal. But, you know, given you were previously an exec there, I'm sure you have thoughts. Maybe you're too smart to share all of those thoughts with reporters. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of curious, is this is this whole thing good for Web3? That's, you know, maybe a little bit different angle on the question. Uh, good question. So first, I just want to, you know, put a disclaimer that you know, you know, I really can't talk about, you know, the firm's involvement and I really wasn't, uh, you know, really involved with that. Mm-hmm. But so first off, right, I spent several good years at Twitter. Uh, I'm a big fan of the product and the company, but just personally, you know, it's given me a lot. I met a lot of amazing mm-hmm. people. Uh, I think Lucas, I think we might have met over Twitter yeah, at one point in time. Mm-hmm. But I think what's actually been really interesting for me also is not just Twitter, but I think the general push to Web3 social. I think that's super interesting. So people ask me, what is the thing that you're spending a lot of time on uh, that you're really interested in? And I think the intersection of social media and Web3 is really fascinating. So if you kind of look at like, the past, say, seven, eight years of, social media, there's been a historical construct between social media and the people who use it. And I think the construct was something like this, which is you give us content 
and we give you audience and reach, right? That's kind of the deal, right? And whether it's like Twitter, mm-hmm. Instagram, TikTok, it's kind of like the core deal, right? And whether it's a great deal, you know, uh, I was part of a lot of the companies that built it, and I think that was fantastic. But over the last, I think, few years, and even pre-crypto, you start starting a small evolution, which is creators and people kind of are really adding value, start opting for more, whether it be monetization, you know, whether it be governance. And you saw this happen in multiple ways, right? You start happening with like companies like Cameo, uh, maybe even like OneDefense, kind of use like a, you know, a slightly more uh, provocative example. But you basically saw the relationship between like what people who are contributing content to these platforms and what these platforms are offering, that relationship slowly shift. When was the last time, you know, you got invited into, and by the way, I don't mean really mean to pick on Twitter. This is, you know, we could use any company as an example. When was the last time you got invited into, you know, the offices in a meeting to be like, hey, we're going to make a decision. We would love to know what you folks think, right? Probably never at all. And again, this is really not Twitter, just the way the world works. And I think some, with some, FD, some people would say that YouTube operates a little differently, though. Potentially, right? And I think everyone yes. has different flavors and they have different right, portions right, right. of this, right? But I think with Web3, I think you have two fundamental shifts, right? The, the first one is, you know, the people who contribute value to the platform now have a share of the economics happening in the platform itself, right? Like, so, for example, if you have millions of followers on any one of these platforms, you know, you're not exactly, you don't exactly have a presence on the cap table. In some of Web3 social media, you actually could have, you know, sort of the spiritual equivalent of a presence on the cap table. That's one. But second is, you now have a say in the governance of said platform too, which is really, really interesting. So, I think it opens up a whole new toolbox uh, and a new power dynamic between creators and the social media platforms. It's very interesting. So, that's one sort of like technical economic lens, which I think is fascinating. The other lens, mm-hmm. which is really fascinating, is one of, uh, you know, this more philosophical lens about like decentralization, right? And decentralization, by the way, there's a whole spectrum of things which, you know, what decentralization could mean. But right now, you know, if you want to leave any social media platform, I'm going to, let's pick a different example. Right? Let's say you are huge on TikTok, you want to leave TikTok, you can't take your graph with you, right? You can't do it on Instagram, you can't do it on Twitter. But, you know, what if you had a way to actually exit one of these platforms and actually take your graph, your audience, your content with you. And not just in sort of like an export to a JSON file and then import it to something, but actually really export, right. uh, take graph with you. And I think that's that right of exit, that right of building alternate clients is what also like Web3 Social brings where things really exciting. So anyway, I think there's a bunch of things we're now in the toolbox which didn't exist before, which is why you're seeing so many interesting founders like, you know, Forecaster, Lens, Build Stuff here. Okay, I'll stop there. No, no, no. Well, I, I want to stay a little bit on that point, but I, I want to I grab, I copied down this quote from Box CEO Aaron Levy, who, as you know, loves to poke fun at Web3 occasionally. What? Uh, but I, I thought haven't it was, heard of that. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, I thought this was a little funny since we're on, on a podcast, but he said, uh, he tweeted recently, every time I listen to a podcast on Web3, I get confused because it sounds like the speakers haven't bought something with a credit <laughs> card online before. Uh, you know, when platforms like Stripe are so streamlined, I guess, how do you convince consumers that they have a problem when they don't feel like they have a problem necessarily? It, you know, well, uh, and, and I guess the, like they ask, what's my problem? And you give them a philosophical answer and they're like, well, that's not really my functional problem, maybe with Web3. Mm-hmm. Web you know, uh, I feel old these days. Right. Um, and so I kind of been like a few, few eras of computation. So when I grew up, when I was a teenager, you know, I was very deep in the Microsoft ecosystem. Right. I used to go around my now wife and I, Arthur and I would go around, we'd evangelize Microsoft and we'd always meet these like, open source evangelists. And, you know, the, the argument around open source was like the people like, what problem does open source solve? Because you have these professional software developers, you know, who are doing great work. Why do you need, the quote was like, you know, a bunch of dudes in their pajamas sitting at home, you know, writing Linux, you know, how would you ever trust them? Right. I think for a lot of these, when these technology cycles are early, it's sometimes unclear what they can lead to. Nobody in 2005 could predict, say, Uber and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok, right? But it was 
clear that this was a break from the old. It was a whole new tool set. And if you go back and look at the, some of the original op-ed pieces from, like, say, Timo Rally in 2005, the prediction they have seemed kind of ridiculous. Right? Some of the things never really came to prove something clear out differently. But it was clear that something new is happening there. And I think after, say, the Web2 era, that was the era when, like, Flickr came out. You know, there was, like, you know, Google Maps getting mashed up into Flickr. There was right, Yahoo right. Pipes. Right, like uh, the original version, you know, that was when TechCrunch first came out, right? I remember like when Mike Arrington used to like, <laughs> yeah, write yeah. those blog posts. And, you know, I remember like, YouTube was, the first post on YouTube was called, it was called the video version of Flickr, you know, uh, which is, you know, well, trust me, one of them did better than the other yeah. later on. But it was pos- it was clear that there was something new happening there. And so for the first time, I think after 15 years, I feel the same kind of energy, right? And the way I measure it is, are there smart people who are working on this of their own volition for fun, right? And so when people ask me, you know, a lot of people ask me this, and even before I joined this job, they'd be like, hey, what do you think of the price of, you know, say Bitcoin or ETH or, you know, whatever. To be honest, I don't really look at that at all. What I look at is like developer momentum, right? Are people building cool things? Are the smart people I know thinking about it, working on it, you know, spending weekends or working on it? Because I think that is much better predictive function than anything else. Right, so anyway, right. kind of a bit of a roundabout answer, but you know, I, I think for the first time after say the original open source era, but I was really grew up in the web 2.0 era, right? Like Ajax, REST, the programmable web, long tail, mm-hmm. all that fun stuff. I feel that same energy and excitement again. I, I actually want to ask you about that energy because when you're talking about developer interest and people sort of getting enthusiastic to build in the space, it sort of reminds me of maybe, you know, a couple of years ago, there was this big sort of push of subsidization from VCs for all these different consumer services. Like you take Uber, for example, right? And just sort of looking back, it seemed in some ways that was sort of a way for investors to sort of push, nudge, maybe almost brute force consumer behavior in some ways. And at least when I look at the Web3 landscape, it seems like that could be happening in terms of developers in the space. And, you know, obviously the space has... I guess, a couple million monthly active users and and several dozen unicorn startups. And it almost feels that there's a lot of subsidization to sort of get to that developer interest and to encourage developers to build. Do you think that's sustainable on Web3? I kind of feel like I want to reject the premise of it a little bit. Sure, Because if you look at the history of crypto, the whole Bitcoin evolution happened way before any VC firm got involved. And right. uh, to my knowledge, uh, and I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Like, I don't think any VC firms were involved in the development of ETH either. It was not like when Vitalik wrote the paper or original airdrop, you know, he raised like a series A. Diff- different yeah. than like a Solana or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there was this whole evolution and kind of this organic momentum, you know, which built up. I, I was watching... Uh, Chris Dixon and Mark on the Backlist podcast like a couple of days ago. And, you know, Chris was like, you know, I wish the meme about like us owning everything was true, but it's not true because a lot of these things <laughs> happened like way before any VC firm like really showed up. But I think the job of any great VC firm or any good VC firm is to go where the heat and the energy is, right? If you're seeing a lot of smart people build things, if you're seeing an inflection in the technology cycle, you want to be involved in that. And some of it will work out, some of it won't. I just think that's organic. But I think so much of the activity here is happening even without any firms involved. Like, for example, even if you could say VC capital is helping fund projects, at the end of the day, you need actual people using it, right? You know, if you went to like, say, NFT event, or if you went to saw like the communities being built around it, like that is also organic, right? That is just like pure, you know, community usage, you know, that is just like pure right. community momentum, uh, and all just kind of happening organically, and nobody can really sort of like artificially engineer that. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fair enough. 
It is like the, the interesting thing about Web3 is I think there's like such a diverse idea of what a consumer is. Is a consumer someone who can buy a $200,000 board ape? Is a consumer someone who like is, you know, downloading a shoe NFT and doing move to earn or something like that? I guess like as the barrier to becoming a consumer gets so much lower, I guess it kind of depends on like what is the opportunity for the startups approaching the consumer audience? And yeah. do you have to like fundamentally have to subsidize consumer startups for a while when there are a million, couple million potential pool of users for them to access right now. I think in some ways this is probably the most exciting opportunity for crypto. Uh, like for example, like uh, I'll be honest, when I joined you know, the team, you know, I one of the things I had to think about was what are my skill sets? And I think you find like my, a lot of my background is not building, you know, super technical infrastructure. I mean, like, I can write code, but nobody should trust me to write code. But it was really about building large-scale consumer products and applications. And in some ways, like, this is, like, a big... I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my career for the next, like, you know, 10-plus whatever years, you know, or 20 years or whatever I'm doing this. And and one of the things I really convinced myself about was that we are in the early stages of consumer adoption of crypto, right? Like, and one of the most interesting things is how do you get this mass market adoption of basically people interacting with, you know, pixels powered by Web3, you know? And, you know, we kind of have some ideas of what that might look like. I think Web3 and gaming is obviously really exciting. You know, anything where you can sign with a wallet is really exciting. I think the world of NFTs has brought in whole new audience and whole new set of creators and artists and a lot of people, which is like really exciting. I think Web3 and social and some of these apps are going to really be exciting as well. But I think what I'm really excited by is what's going to be that Web3 app, which is going to get to like 50, 100 million users, all the kind of numbers that we used to take for granted when you kind of like look at like the Web2 world. And I think that's going to happen. And that's really, I think, my sort of like my personal bet when I moved here. Well, I, you know, you talked about some of the stuff you are super excited about. I guess one of the things I'm assuming you're not super excited about is kind of crypto regulation, which has been this hot conversation. Will they or won't they? But, you know, in the past week, we've seen regulators, they've arrested a startup executive, they've sued a uh, exchange. You know, there's been all this conversation about stablecoin regulation from Terra. I think during bull markets, no politician wants to be responsible for stopping economic activity. But when it's already a bear market and stuff has cooled a little bit, maybe they get a little bit more active. So like, are you generally feeling like regulators might be sharpening their pitchforks right now and coming after the industry? Like, how do you feel? Good question. To be honest, I'm not the best person to uh, handle this. You know, I'm I, not super I know that response. Uh, I bet you have thoughts. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm not super plugged in, right? I spend my time, you know, I spend my time just thinking about like product and, you know, uh, founders, right? And so I'm not probably the best person to uh, handle well, that. Well, but you were, you know, you were at these social media companies who obviously yeah. always had regulation looming over them and had to think about how to act in yeah. case it happened. But then nothing wide reaching really ever came about. And it kind of feels like there's potentially a little bit in crypto where people are like, they're like, well, can I do this? We're not get, really getting any like guidance from the government in terms of whether this is kosher or not. But now it's kind of a different regulatory landscape, potentially. Uh, yeah, I think one of the things I think we've been trying to do and, uh, you know, I want to get a plug in here. Our, we have somebody amazing at the firm, Miles Jennings. You know, if you haven't followed him on Twitter, you should go follow him. He's our kind of a head counsel, but, you know, it doesn't kind of understate what he does. He kind of like a chief thinker on all things decentralization. And one of the things I think he's been trying to do and other firms are trying to do is kind of like really try 
and educate people on what a lot of this means, you know, and what's possible. So I, for example, one thing I recommend is like, you know, he wrote this amazing paper on what it means to be decentralized and what decentralization actually means and kind of like the various kinds of decentralization. So mm-hmm. what, I think one sort of area of focus for Miles and some of the folks is kind of what I think of is education, which is like kind of opining on some of these policies and, you know, trying to really kind of like bring our perspective. But hey, right, like I spend my time like nerding out. To, I'm not probably the best person to handle this. Fair enough. Yeah. So I guess on a similar topic, on a similar note, there is a lot of criticism of crypto and of Web3. And I think with the bear market, that's only intensified, right? And uh, there was a letter that came out a little bit ago talking about some of the dangers of cryptocurrencies that got a bunch of attention. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the argument when, when at least I'm examining, like, where is this coming from, is that, you know, people are concerned about consumers and retail investors specifically being pushed to invest in things that maybe they don't have as much control over with so much volatility and fewer investor protections legally. So I'm just curious to get your thoughts on some of those critiques and, you know, where you might agree or disagree. I, I read the letter that you pointed to, and you yeah. know, I think there's a couple of things, right? First is, you know, I think at the firm, we kind of take a very long-term view on just like the crypto cycle. So I think the firm has been doing this for seven, eight years. You know, we're going to do this for like many, many, many years to come. And, you know, we kind of seen like previous bear cycles, bull cycles go. And I think this is amazing. The, we put out this report like a few weeks ago called the State of Crypto 2022. And I think it's an interesting graph of like, you know, how price cycles kind of overlap but not exactly with kind of product innovation cycles. And you kind of yeah. get like a bunch of people come in and they build new things. So in some ways, I think there's kind of a question here which a lot of people wind up asking. They say, hey, what do you think of like the decent market prices? And I think we just take a long-term view, right? Like if you, and if you think about it in long-term horizon, like five plus years, right? You see multiple of these cycles and you, you know, and you really focus on like, what is the application you're building? What value does it bring to the consumers? I think that's kind of like the real focus. You know, when I get the letter, I think there's a few kind of critiques. Well, I think there's a few things in the letter, right? Uh, the first one is, first of all, I kind of found it bizarre that there's a bunch of people who want to kind of like, you know, I think there's a lot of part of the letter which was like not about, say, price, but also about crypto as a technology itself. And my general sure. response to that is, it's kind of like weird to kind of like have people be like, hey, this piece of technology, you know, we just don't agree with it, right? My kind of belief is like, let the market decide, right? Like, you know, it is not like 20 years ago, somebody was like, hey, you know, Emacs versus VI or REST versus TOP, right? If you want to, you know, write a letter, angry letter and, you know, get people to weigh in. So that's kind of like a, one big part of it. I'm like, hey, you know, at the end of the day, if consumers don't adopt like the products that people are building, this thing won't work out. But obviously there are a bunch of people who believe it will and we can yeah. let the market decide. That's one. The, the second part of it is, I think there's kind of like some misunderstandings about like what Web3 brings to the table. So if you look at like that letter, but also like, you know, I remember like a post from like Moxie, who is one of the people behind Signal a few months ago. I think sure. one thing people misunderstand about Web3 is it is the right to exit. It's a right to have alternatives. So kind of bring back to Twitter example, you know, it's not that one of the things you can't do with Twitter today is you can't use an alternative client. Like right now, and if you want to use any client with your email, you probably can. But a Twitter, you absolutely can't, right? If Twitter shuts down or Facebook shuts down or TikTok shuts down, you're just done. There's no alternative client that you can use. One thing I think Web3 gives you is the right to have alternates and right to exit, which I think is really powerful. So I saw the letter. I was kind of like disappointed. I thought it had some misunderstandings of what crypto was. Well, I, I, I'm interested in that because I also feel like there's this little like fascinating thing where it's like, People talk about why consumers are interested in some of these upstart platforms and they're like, oh, well, what are the individual tacits of what Web3 offers them in terms of like the structure of their governance and stuff. But ultimately, I'd say 95% of consumers are getting into these platforms because they're going to get airdropped a token that they feel like is going to give them some sort of financial payday. And I know that that's a cynical way to look at it, but I also know that that's true. Uh, you know, and so I kind of I read their things less so as a critique of Web3, more so as a critique of the actual use case that a lot of people are kind of onboarding with, which is they're like, 
I'm getting in because I want this token or I want this NFT and it's going to go up a certain percentage and then I'm going to be rich and happy. Like, I don't know if that's something that you fundamentally disagree with, but like, that's a little bit. I, I think a little that's bit sort of, uh, look, there's definitely a lot of that, right? But I think it's sort of, that isn't the motive, captures the motivation of why a lot of people get involved. There is I know that's team. not why developers are excited about it. It's not just developers, but I think it also doesn't capture why the community got excited, right? Like, for example, look at Constitution Dow. Right? Like, you know, why did a bunch of people all of a sudden, like one late evening, say like, hey, we're going to rally and go buy a physical copy of the Constitution, right? I truly and try don't and know. make a moment in time. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it wasn't, you know, any expectation right. of making any money out of it. But sure. they did, right? Well, they almost, they almost did. Um, uh, they almost got there. Damn you, Ken Griffin. <laughs> well, uh, well uh, I, I, I'm going to just let this slide by. Uh, and, <laughs> But, you know, so if you go attend, like, you know, any sort of, like, NFT event with, like, a popular NFT project, right, there is something magical and deep there that the community brings, which is not just about the financial aspect, which is not just about, like, people hoping to make money. So I think the folks just focus on the financials of Web3 are missing the energy that is happening within these communities. So I think I, I love the Constitution DAO example because mm. there was no expectation of profit there. There was nobody being like, hey, we're going to make a bunch of money from this. But it was a moment in the zeitgeist which captured people's imagination. So I think it's a lot of these magical moments which wind up getting created, which has nothing to do with money. Yeah, I do. We've talked for a bit, so I don't want to go in too long. But I do. One thing I definitely want to hit as we're kind of on the critics point, I think a big complaint that I hear amongst even venture capitalists who might not be interested in crypto specifically, is that some of the big crypto VCs, they get all these tokens from these deals and eventually maybe they dump them onto retail, maybe not all of them. But ultimately, like if there's something to win for a startup, like the institutional investors will always win and maybe retail sometimes wins. But like there's kind of an inherent power imbalance there. Like how do you kind of feel about that? Uh well, I can't speak for other firms, but I think for us, I think we try and be really good members of the, the crypto community overall. I think in all sorts of things from, you know, everything from the way our firm is constructed. Like, you know, we just, for example, announced like this research organization, which is, you know, really trying to kind of push the state of the art forward for all things crypto. Mm-hmm. You know, the way we participate in governance. One of my favorite blog posts on all things crypto is this blog post from Vitalik called uh, The Scarcest Resources Legitimacy. If you folks haven't seen it, you should totally go read it. And crypto is amazing because I think if you build up reputation and credibility, it kind of compounds over time. And I think it's like the obvious sure. real value. So I think for us, we, we take like, you know, being good stewards, members of the crypto community very, very, very seriously. And that means I think you have to act in a particular way, you know, um, and one thing's one of the other things I love about crypto is like everything you do is so transparent. You know, everything you do is like so visible. It's so it's really hard to kind of like hide, you know, your actions. So uh, it is being a it good is kind member. of heart. I mean, I can't I don't know what Andreessen's wallets are that hold tokens and projects that they got from like, you know, token safes or something in, in seed stage startups. So I guess there's like there's this like a little bit of a challenge with the transparency side, because like institutional investors who have equity investments in startups that also have tokens, you know, they know their roadmaps, they know who they're going to hire, when they're going to make an announcement. And those things would typically kind of juice up the token price amongst retail. But I guess like if I'm a company that's like announcing I have a big MMO, if I announce that publicly, like the token price associated with it probably is going to go up if assuming. So when you have that situation, I guess is it is there kind of a weird issue with VCs handling equity and tokens in some capacity? Like, is it as transparent as it should be? Well, actually, I want to answer the first part of it, right? I think okay. we, one of the things that ways we think about it is like, we want to be long-term partners for these companies. And, you know, we want to be like working with them, like, you know, for 
five, seven, whatever years and be like really long. Um, and so that, I think that kind of represents our approach to how we think about equity tokens, uh, all of that. But again, this is speaking sure. for us. I can't like speak for um, everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably a good lens to think about just crypto overall, which is, you know, if you're going to get involved in something, do you really believe in, you know, the team? Do you really believe in this roadmap for like the real long term? So a lot of these questions, I think when people ask me this, right, I'm like, I don't really think of it that way. I'm trying to think about like, okay, you know, is this a team that I want to work with? My job is we work with teams at the very earliest of stages, right? You know, when it's a bunch of people and, you know, often they have very little, you know, they might just have like a slide deck or some piece of code and then you want to partner with them for many, many years. So it's like a very long-term time horizon. So some of these questions kind of like, it's not exactly how we think about it, right? We think about it, hey, if you want to partner with this for the next five years, is this the right team? Is this the right kind of project in the space? Do we believe in this long-term? So I probably think that's a good approach to think about like most things too. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess like if Elon wants to sell some Tesla shares, he's going to have to make a disclosure about that. And I'm going to find that out as, you know, maybe I hold shares or something in Tesla. And then I'm going to be like, hmm, why is he doing that? But do you think that I should be able to see, should I be able to see like what institutional investors hold tokens in like a startup? And if they're selling, like, is that, yeah, that's something that, no feels, disclosures on that feels material to me? Yeah. Yeah. Uh- I don't know. It's 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 a it's a good question. I don't know. Uh, I, I think in general, like you know, the world of crypto pushes for more transparency, which is good. You know, yeah. like, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if they're talking about like crypto or the world pre crypto, but I think the world of crypto pushes for transparency. You get like on chain governance. You get like every proposal being voted on. I remember last year, I was I forget which project this was, but I saw like a bunch of you know VC firms actually had to go jump into the forum and talk about like the value they bring to the table. So in general, be, I think yeah. the world of the world of crypto pushes towards like more openness and transparency, which general seems like a good thing. What the right sort of like position on that should be, what the time frame to that, you know, I, I don't have like a really strong opinion on. But in general, I think like, you know, more openness is probably a good thing. And crypto generally pushes towards more openness. Right. Well, I have a million more questions that I'd love to ask you, but I know you've gone a little over time. But I just wanted to say thanks for hopping on and, and, and talking through the wild world of Web3 with us. Yeah, it was great having you as a guest. Oh, thanks so much for uh, having this. It's fun. I know, love your podcast and you know, uh, looking forward to a lot more. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back every week with the top crypto news and interviews with experts in the space. You can catch us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction, at techcrunch.com forward slash newsletters. Check out the links in our show notes for some of the TechCrunch crypto coverage this week. You can also follow us at chain underscore reaction on Twitter. We'll see you next week. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Lucas Matney, along with my co-host, Anita Ramswamy. We are produced by Yashad Kulkarni, and our associate producer is Maggie Stamets, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.